0: As we have studied the gospel of John chapter eight together, we have heard some bold proclamations from Jesus. Jesus has declared, I am the light of the world. He's also declared, if you abide in my word, the truth will set you free. But even as he's made these bold declarations, there has been a constant conversation, a conversation between him and the religious Jewish establishment, a conversation about Jesus' identity and also the reality of the Father. Jesus, who constantly refers to the Father, glorifies the Father, and says he's sent from the Father, has revealed that these Jewish leaders not only do not know the Father, but their Father is the Father of Lies. So in this constant conversation of who is Jesus, it is directly, and it's always connected, to who is God, who is the Father. And that's why when we come to this passage, the temperature has been raised already. How many of us, when we cook something on the stove, we fill up a pot with some water, and the water is cold. So then we turn up the temperature. The temperature of the water rises. And the water starts to bubble. And then the water starts to boil. And if it's hot enough, the boiling, bubbling water will overflow out of the pot. So it's at this point. This is the boiling point in the conversation between Jesus and the Jewish establishment. And Jesus does not back down. He actually turns the temperature up. Because in the end, what matters most... Is not necessarily religious trivia. is not necessarily man-made religious traditions. What it all comes down to is the identity of Jesus. What it all comes down to is understanding the bigness of Jesus. And that's what they had a hard time seeing, hard time receiving, hard time believing in this conversation of dad's. They had a hard time believing in the bigness of Jesus. I remember when I was a seven-year-old kid down in South Jersey, down in Apsican, I was playing in the living room and I was playing right before this massive bookshelf. And while the bookshelf was big, it wasn't very sturdy. So I was playing in one of the shelves in the bookshelf and I used one of the doors to pull myself up. You can probably guess what's about to happen. Instead of myself going up, the bookshelf started to come down. Have you ever been there? Like all of a sudden, things happen in slow motion. Like I still remember it as a seven-year-old. Now, what I also remember is that no one was near me. There was no one close. I was by myself. I don't know where my brother was. I don't know where mom and dad was, but I couldn't see or I don't remember anyone close. Then all of a sudden, slowly the bookshelf comes down and then out of nowhere, as if he was wearing a cape, as if it was something out of a comic book. da My dad shows up, he jumps in front of me, and he pushes the bookshelf back up against the wall. I will remember that for two reasons. First, a vase came and hit me right on the head, and I still feel it to this day, which some of you are saying, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> but I also remember this. My dad was never bigger than that day. My dad was really big in my eyes. He's so strong. Where did he come from? Wow. Superman's got nothing on my daddy. And then what happens? Then you grow up. Then you grow up and you realize everybody is broken. Everyone needs grace. Everyone is on the same level playing field. Our heroes are revealed to be broken people just like me and you, just like I am. So as we grow up, oftentimes the people that we put on a pedestal, that we emulate, people that we look up to, oftentimes they get smaller. And that's just natural. That's just part of this world and living this life. But the opposite should happen with Jesus. While we are called to have a childlike faith, that means to trust God like a child trusts his father. We're also commanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to put away childish ways. That when we become men, we are to act like men. So let us come to Jesus. Yes, always and continually believing that he is big, but put away childish ways, even as we come with childlike faith. Because when we are being childish in our faith, what happens? Jesus starts to decrease. Jesus starts to shrink and I become bigger and bigger in my own eyes. What was the prayer of John the Baptist? May he become greater and I become less. It's in this passage, you are going to hear Jesus three distinct, very, very powerful ways declare his bigness. It's not going to be people saying that he is great And that he is grand and that he is wonderful and he is big he's going to declare his greatness and his bigness from his own lips and this is very very important for us not only to have sound biblical theology but a big jesus is directly connected to the big problems in your life in fact when we see the problems in our life and those problems seem bigger than jesus don't be surprised when we get discouraged, when we get downtrodden. Have you ever noticed that during a church service, we can gather and we could sing about the glory of God and how much He loves us? We can gather and praise God and say, yes and amen, that the tomb is still empty. Jesus is alive. He's risen and reigning and church is great and here we go. And then we get into the parking lot and somebody calls us and all of a sudden it's bad news. A bad health diagnosis, or you have a fight with your family that you were just praising God with in the church service, or perhaps sadness overtakes your heart because you miss someone and you deeply, deeply wish they were still with you. In those moments, how does the yes and the amen of church, the bigness of Jesus here in corporate worship, translate to your own private devotion? You see, a big Jesus makes our problems seem smaller. But we have to remember, we have to remember, the world doesn't teach this. Culture will never proclaim this. In fact, it's okay to culture to like Jesus. Just don't love him. Meaning that it's okay for culture that you keep Jesus prominent, just don't make him preeminent. It's okay in culture if Jesus is your savior. You just can't say that he's the savior. It's okay in culture for you to say you're a fan of Jesus. Just don't be a follower, an evangelist of Jesus. It's okay if you believe in Jesus privately, but don't proclaim him publicly. No, when we believe in a big Jesus, everything changes. The way we see ourselves the way we see our families, the way we see our careers, the way we see our past, our present, our future, a big Jesus helps us in so many ways. A big Jesus helps us to look at sin as we should. You see, when Jesus is small, then we won't take sin seriously. When our Jesus is small, the Bible will seem silent, conversely. When our Jesus is small, then watch how big people become. When our Jesus is small, watch how intimidating the world becomes. I like how A.W. Tozer talked about it. He said that what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. My goodness, what a politically incorrect thing to say. No, that's not true. The most important thing about me is me and whatever I believe about me. Well, believe it or not, that is a religious statement. Whatever we believe about God, even if we don't believe in God, that is shaping the way that you live, shaping the way that you prioritize, shaping the way that you see your purpose in life. So when we believe in a really big Jesus, that changes us. Tozer goes on to say that not only does our understanding of God determine who we are, but we are also drawn towards, we move toward our understanding of who God is. So that's why you've heard me say it before. Everyone worships. And not all worship happens in houses of worship. Bars can be houses of worship. Your job can be houses of worship. Sports stadiums can be houses of worship. Wherever you go, that's where you are. And whatever you're seeking, to give you identity, peace, and security. There is some direct spiritual connection to how you are placing your trust in that person, in that thing, in that place. So Psalm 115 verse 8 gives us insight even as it challenges us. Psalm 115 verse 8 talks about the identity of who God really is and how something happens to us. If We start to give our hearts to counterfeit saviors and the false gods. Listen to this. This is a game-changing verse. This should wake us up and help us see not only the bigness of Jesus, but how as sheep, subtly, we can follow the idols of the world. Psalm 115, verse 8. The Bible says, those who make them, those who make idols, become like them. Did you catch that? Those who make idols those that give themselves to created things, those that give themselves to worldly things, all of a sudden, they become like them. So do, the Bible says, all who trust in them. So the question is, not necessarily, do you believe in Jesus, but how big is your Jesus? How big is the Savior of your life? Verse 53, the religious establishment, the Jews will ask Jesus a question. It's a penetrating question, not just as far as religious information, but it is the question of personal transformation. They ask Jesus, who do you make yourself out to be? Well, we're going to hear him talk about himself in a second. But right out of the gate, the gospel of John proclaims and presents a really big Jesus. Do you remember the very beginning of this gospel? John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning... John goes back not only the beginning of Jesus' life, not only the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of everything. John chapter one, verse one. "In the beginning was the Word. Can we say the word? the word? And the word was with God. The word very good, was God. He was in the beginning with God. It continues. He's that big, ready? The word, of course, is Jesus. All things were made through Jesus and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. In him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's a big Jesus. With God is God, and is the word that God used to speak everything into existence. So now after we read John chapter 1, we all of a sudden read Genesis chapter 1 with a new lens. We remember how in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And not only God the Father, but his spirit hovered over the waters. And then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, it says what? And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Genesis chapter 1, lining up perfectly with John chapter 1. What is the word that God used? Jesus himself. What is the light? Jesus himself. From the beginning, we see Father, Son, and Spirit, not only in creation of the world, but in creation of humanity. When God was going to make Adam and Eve our first parents, he said, let us make men in our image. Go ahead. You can look at it. Let us make men in our image. Was he looking to Gabriel? Was he looking to Michael, the angels? No, the Bible says we are made in the image of God, right? not the image of God and of angels. So what is he saying? There's a plurality in God himself from the very beginning. Let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, make men in our image. Not only that, but the Bible continues to talk about how Christ revealed himself in the Old Testament. You want to hear a really cool theological term that can impress your friends at parties? You ready? They're called Christophanies. Can we say Christophany? Christophany. Meaning that before Christmas, before the incarnation, Jesus Christ broke forth in the space and the time and revealed himself. For example, we could read in the book of Joshua, where you have the commander of the Lord's army standing with Israel, ready at the precipice of Jericho. And what does this commander of the Lord's army say? Joshua, take off your sandals, for where you're standing is holy ground. The only other person that ever does that is the Lord himself. Or we can look to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, where you have those three Jewish exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Abednego. They're in the fiery furnace. And by the way, when people go in the fiery furnace, they don't come out. They look, and then you have the pagan, non-believing Babylonians see a fourth person in there. And they say it verbatim. It looks like a son of God. Not only Christ in creation, not only Christ in these Christophanies, but Christ in prophecy. Friends, we could talk about how Jesus was predicted and prophesied as far as his birth, his life, and his death. But I want you to hear these verses that describe him not just as suffering servant, but as God Himself. When we were on vacation, I had a conversation with a very kind and very nice Muslim man. And he did affirm Jesus, Isa as a prophet. But he didn't believe him to be the son of God. He didn't believe him to be crucified in our place. You see, it was okay to keep Jesus in a place of prominence, just not preeminence. And this was one of the verses that I pointed to, saying that this isn't some New Testament miscalculation that needed correction by the the, uh, Quran. No, from the Old Testament, In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that Christmas verse that we love, what does it say? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What's the sign? The Lord himself. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what, church? God with us. Not just Messiah with us. Not just suffering servant with us. Not just the one who fulfills covenants with us. God with us. And then it continues in Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to focus on this a little bit on Wednesday. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called what? Wonderful, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and sure enough, Mighty. What? God. You see, the religious establishment, they had eyes to read the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the prophecies, but they didn't have ears to hear or hearts to believe because it was there the whole time. Jesus, the Son, the Messiah, would come as mighty God himself. Then it continues in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ describe himself as the fulfillment of the law. We see the Bible describe him as the fulfillment of the covenant. We see him described as our Passover lamb, our great high priest, the anointed king, the image of God greater than Abraham, greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, greater than the temple, greater than the Sabbath itself. It's as if to say there's no greater way we could describe his greatness. In the New Testament, Jesus does things that only God could do. Only God could do it. Jesus has the power over creation. Jesus has the power over angels and demons. Jesus has the power over diseases. Jesus has the power over death. Jesus has the power to know men's hearts and thoughts. Jesus has the power to know the future. Jesus has the power, listen friends, to forgive sins. They hated him for this. Who are you to claim to forgive sins? Only God could do that. And then Jesus would accept the worship of others unless you truly are the son of God and God, the son, you will not see any angel, any prophet, any apostle for one half a second, except the worship of others. And Jesus gladly does it. Who is this Jesus? They ask him, who do you make yourself out to be? Well, in the gospel of John, he describes himself as the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of salvation. I am the vine of sanctification. I am the good shepherd. Listen, church, I am the good shepherd. And Jesus says, no one can snatch my children from my hand, my sheep from my hand. I am, Jesus says, the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 10, two chapters from now, Jesus will say, I and the Father are one. And then in John chapter 14, in a conversation with Philip, Philip will ask Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and then that'll be enough for us. Jesus, you can almost envision him perplexed. He says to Philip, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Quote, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is the bigness and the greatness of Jesus. Now you might be saying, all right, pastor, I've had the Trinity down a long time ago. Why are we walking through this? Because if there's one thing that the world and the enemy will try to do, it'll try to minimize your trust in Jesus by minimizing the size of your Jesus. And that's where the story picks up here in verse 48. Let's look at the text, shall we? John chapter eight, verse 48. Right out of the gate, the temperature's already hot. The water's already boiling, and they make an accusation that is altogether shocking. The Jews answered him, Jesus, by saying, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Verse 50, Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly... I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Right out of the gate, the religious establishment, the Jews, they use the names that they think will end this conversation immediately. They accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan and demon possessed. Are we not right in saying this, Jesus? You're possessed by the devil and you're a half-breed, uh, unholy, heretic Samaritan. It's almost like they're waiting for Jesus to say, yeah, you got it right, guys. This whole time, I was just waiting for you to point it together, and that's true. I am I am actually, yes, demonically possessed and a Samaritan. No, but this is how this works. I mean, it almost seems childish, right? Do you remember those disagreements you used to get on in the playground during school recess? I'm rubber, you're glue, what, how does it go? Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Or in today's culture, in our political climate, when somebody wants to end the conversation, what accusation do they make? You're sexist, you're racist, or all of a sudden, you're Russian. (laughs) Have you noticed that? Where where does that come from? They wanted to end the conversation by saying, all right, this is it. Here is our hammer. Here is our gauntlet. This man's demon-possessed. This man is the Samaritan. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't back down. He turns the temperature up. First, he talks about his father and how he lives to honor his father. Friends, when we have a steady, calm confidence in Jesus's identity, and not just who we are, but whose we are, then we don't care if the world judges us or calls us names. Jesus says, I don't live to be judged by you. I, paraphrase, I honor my father. He is the judge. And then he says something so powerful. Friends, if your Jesus is just a good teacher, if he is just an itinerant preacher, if he's just a kind man who did good things but never intended to be God on earth, we gotta come back to what he himself said about himself. He says, truly, truly. Now, everything Jesus ever said was true. When he says the words truly, truly, what does that mean? Pay attention. This really matters. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jewish establishment loses their minds. It continues here in verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, or whom you say he is our God. Verse 55. But you have not known him, I know him if i were to say that i do not know him i would be a liar like you but i do know him and i keep his word your father abraham rejoiced that he would see my day he saw it and was glad let's pause right there jesus is not only claiming knowledge of god he's claiming knowledge of abraham when they ask are you greater than abraham What does Jesus do? Of course, he doesn't come out and say, well, yes, I am actually. Thank you very much. No, he lives not to glorify himself. This is why Jesus doesn't come out and say verbatim because some of us, we, we think we absolutely just need the three words. Jesus to say, quote, I am God. He does everything that God does. He uses the names that God uses. He does things that fulfill the scriptures that talk about God. Now he's acting as God. But now here in this passage, we see. We see why he's not trying to bring glory to himself. His purpose, his passion is to glorify his father. So even if he's not going to say, I'm greater than Abraham, even if he's not going to walk around and say the three words, I am God, everything points to it, including the words from his very lips. So while he won't say those words, while he won't talk about the importance of his glory, he knows that the Father glorifies him. Jesus refuses to assert his glory. God the Father will, though. Jesus refuses to assert his glory. God the Spirit will, though. Jesus refuses to assert his glory. God's word will though. Creation will though. Angels will though. His church will though. I tell you the truth. When they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus said, if you do not say it, the rocks themselves will cry out. All of creation worships its creator. All of creation gives glory to its creator. But with that said, Now, Jesus, in one of the clearest, most powerful and succinct personal claims to divinity and his deity, makes a very profound statement. Let's go really slow and look at it. Verse 57. If you're looking at it in your Bible, verse 57. So the Jews said to them, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Listen, friends. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did this lead to a bunch of men picking up stones and wanting to kill Jesus Christ? What did this, what happened here? So after Jesus said that Abraham saw his day and was glad, they didn't pick up stones then. They didn't pick up stones to kill him then. They mocked him and they said, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. You can almost hear their laughter in the background. Oh, but they want to kill him after he says the next thing. Notice now the grammar. Jesus says before Abraham was, if he was only talking about his Pre existence before Abraham, he could have said, Before Abraham was, I was. But he doesn't say that, right? They're not stoning him for bad grammar. Some of us really, really bothers us when people use bad grammar. That's not what's going on here. No, what Jesus is doing is he is using the very name that God revealed, that God used for himself. Jesus is describing himself in that way. Not only is he claiming pre-existence, not only is he claiming to have life and knowledge, existence before Christmas, before he was born in that manger, he knew Abraham, he was before Abraham, but he's using the very name that God gave Moses. Exodus chapter three, verse 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what is his name? What, Moses says, shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am, Jesus says. Now notice, God didn't say to Moses, I am whoever you want me to be. I am whoever you want me to be. No, I am who I am i am and that means there was never a moment there was never a millisecond, millisecond in all of eternity where god was not when he says i am that means there was never a moment where god or jesus was not not only in the past but also in the future the bible says of jesus jesus christ the same yesterday today and what church forever you see friends when we Read the Bible, and we hear God reveal himself as the I am. And then we hear God reveal his will in the Ten Commandments. How many of us know the Ten Commandments? We might know about the Ten Commandments. Some of us, they're the Ten Suggestions, right? Do we actually know them? Because the first two are really important. To paraphrase, the first one goes like this. Worship the right God. And the second one says, paraphrase, Don't worship the right God in the wrong way. Meaning that this God, this Trinitarian Father, Son, and Spirit, this truth will set you free. Not just the truth, not just an abstract truth, but this truth about Jesus' identity will set you free. Friend, set you free from what? Many of us, we live in constant fear, constant guilt constant doubt, because our Jesus is too small. We don't think we're able to be forgiven because our Jesus can't forgive us. We don't think we can live in boldness without the spirit of fear. That's why we're constantly afraid, because our Jesus is too small. No, when we hear Jesus say, I am, not only is he using the name for God, but here's what a Christian should say in response. When Jesus says I am, how should a Christian respond? Number one. When Jesus says I am, Christians gladly respond. That means I am not. I'm not Jesus. I'm not the Savior. I'm not God. I'm not strong. I'm not control in control. I'm not perfect. I don't have all the answers. In fact, I am a sinner in need of grace. It's not about you. Your life is not about you. And that's the best news that we've ever heard. When Jesus says, I am, that means we say, I am not. But you want to know the simultaneous beautiful truth? Ready, everyone? If I can get your attention real quick. Jesus says, I am. You know what else a Christian should say? Not only I am not, but I am His. I am His. I belong to Him. So as much as I am not the Savior, I am His. As much as I am not God, I am His. As much as I am a sinner, I am His. Forgiven and loved, the beloved of the Savior. That will so change your heart that if we have no love left in our marriage, all of a sudden, when we say, I am not, and I am his, that softens even the hardest, coldest heart. Because we come back to our first love. And our first love, as important as it is, wasn't tradition. And our first love, as important as it is, wasn't religious morals. Our first love, if we know Jesus... Is Jesus. Do you hear him say, before Abraham was, I am? He is worthy. He is good. Friends, he is the one that your heart has been looking for. Would you turn from false gods, counterfeit saviors, and return back to him? I'm going to invite the band to come forward now. And as we hear about what we just heard, let us continue to ask this question. As we prepare our hearts to pray and to sing, how is the Lord beckoning you right now to trust him, to look to him, to lean on him, and to truly believe in him, the great I am? Let's pray together, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as Jesus often said, let him who has ears hear. Lord, this sound might be reverberating in our ears, and yet grace not touching our hearts. So Holy Spirit, we need you now to glorify Jesus Christ, God's Son. Holy Spirit, we need you now to reveal the bigness of Jesus Let us come before him as we are, not as we should be, not waiting for some moment, not waiting for perfection. No, let us come to him, the great I am, as we are, imperfect, needing him and needing his grace. Friends, if this is you this morning, we invite you to turn from idols, turn from worldly passions, and desires, and know the greatest pleasure, know the greatest joy. It is not a path. It's not a program. It's a person, and his name is Jesus. Would you open your heart to him right now? Would you believe in him as you turn from yourself and turn from your sin? Pray this simple prayer with me. Unless it's the Holy Spirit, and your desire the prayer and the words of the prayer will mean and amount to nothing but if this is your desire would you cry out to the Lord now with me Heavenly Father thank you for the gift of Jesus help me see him in his bigness I need forgiveness God I need your grace God, save my heart from these counterfeit idols, these false gods, and help me return to my first love. Please fill me with your spirit Lord, and help me put my trust in you. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Amen.